Hi there, and welcome to Borborygmi, Noises from the Veterinary World, the show that lets you overhear conversations between veterinary professionals about anything and everything that's topical in the industry. Brought to you by me, Naomi Mella. Today is the final episode of Borborygmi for this season, and we're ending with a conversation on diversity and racism in the veterinary profession. This may be uncomfortable listening for some of you. You may roll your eyes and say, this is pointless. I'm not a racist. I'm tired of hearing about Black Lives Matter and it just isn't relevant to me. But imagine how tired people of colour are at this point in time, having to constantly justify themselves and their place in Great Britain. To deny the existence of racism in the veterinary world is to deny the lived experience of the all too few people of colour that work alongside us. To deny the existence of racism as a white person is to effectively call those whose voices are only just beginning to be heard in the veterinary sphere, liars. The reality is that our profession is overwhelmingly white and that casual racism exists on a daily basis. As a society, we easily recognise overt violent acts of obvious racial hatred as being worthy of discussion. But it is the daily microaggressions towards people of colour those small throwaway comments about immigrants, the times you cross the street when you see a young black man at night, the times you see a person of colour driving a flash BMW and think, well, they must be a drug dealer, and every sentence that starts with, I'm not a racist, but... These things create a society in which diversity is not championed and celebrated, but rather feared and resisted. My guests today are Navaratnam Parthiban and Libby Kemkaran-Thompson, and I want to thank them both sincerely for their patience in this chat. In an attempt to be an ally, I've taken small steps to educate myself on issues of race and diversity, and yet still I asked clumsy questions and felt embarrassed at my own ignorance. This is a challenging issue, but those of us who have the privilege of being white must challenge ourselves, educate ourselves, and work alongside people of colour to create real and meaningful change. I started talking about the issues in the veterinary profession in 2014 when I'd faced it myself. But what I found was there was no support. Um, so when I, when I started facing it, I just, I, I tried to appeal to the RCVS and the BVA and, uh, all the different organizations. And actually there was nothing in place. So on t- between 2014, 2016, I tried to do a lot of change on my own and it, nothing really changed very much. Um, I didn't really get through the front door very in many places. So in 2016, um, I rang Issa up and, and I knew she was in my year of vet school and uh, she'd written something, I think on Facebook or something about some sort of discrimination she had faced. And I said to her, look, should we do something together? Because, you know, it's not working on our own and you've obviously got the same sort of problems I've got. Um, so we formed BVEDS in 2016 um, and literally it was just um, some social media accounts um, and then between 2016 to 2019, um, we, we basically, we went forward trying to make, you know, try to get into the RCVS, try to get to the BVA and, um, a lot more doors started opening. Um, so we did a lot more talks and things like that. And we had a lot of vet followers. So a lot of vet followed our, um, social media. So sort of the mid 2019 towards the end of 2019, what we thought was it'd be good to get more people involved. So we started more of a steering group. Um, so we appealed for people to join the steering group, which Libby kindly uh, volunteered as well. Um, so we've got about 10 vets, completely random, you know, um, all ages, all genders, um, all jobs, everything. Um, and um, what we try and do with this is we try and get lots of projects on board and then we try to distribute it among the, the steering group 
but we're also trying to engage other other vets as well and students. Um, so since the beginning of this year, we've done we've had quite a lot of activity. So a lot more people have uh, joined on to our closed Facebook group, so we can have some open discussions about issues. Our um, our education side has grown a, a lot more, so we're providing a lot more materials, and we are. Um, growing growing in in the the things that we can do so we've got more a mentorship scheme now um, and we're talking to a lot more different places so we're talking to some of the educational establishments that we weren't really talking to before um, as well as the um, typical the 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 organizations that are involved so I originally you know the BVA um, didn't do anything for a while and the RCVS did invite me and uh, when I went in um, I took all the evidence that we had, but it seemed like there was a cultural problem, as in um, it's it's not enough for one person or even two people to be thinking that it's a problem there because they felt that a lot of the vets were um, didn't believe there was a problem and so change wouldn't happen. Uh, the other thing is they weren't willing to invest money or time on this problem. So it was almost like, well, they wanted to hear us, but they didn't want to do anything about it. But that's what inspired me to get involved the, was because it's I could see your frustration. And, you know, I think I think this is a it's, it's more of a, a business problem than than anything else, you know, and, and the, it needs money and resources thrown at it. And that takes interest. You have to have a certain level of interest in fixing a problem. And the thing that I see happening is that if it doesn't directly affect you, unfortunately, there is a tendency in the world not to want to get involved. And so that was that was what inspired me to, to you know, join the fight. And um get get some traction on moving this forward because it feels like we've been going round and round for a few years now so i think the other problem is as vets we we're very like evidence-based we need evidence 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 and if i said there's racism in the profession you know rather than understanding you know the complexity of racism and understanding actually what the different forms of racism are and all sorts what they said, the first thing they say, well, where's the evidence? You know, Show no one's me. reported anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can't deal with a problem like racism like that. And, and for me, it was more like, well, just look around. How many people of ethnic minorities do we have? Isn't that a problem enough? But I think that the, um, the, the problem is that people weren't willing to try and understand the problem and were trying to make it too book smart, too scientific rather than actual the, the the morality problem and you know the the equality act problem that it really is you know as lo- as well as a business case so to begin with there wasn't even a policy so if you went to the rcvs if you went to the bva there was a discrimination a very general discrimination survey uh, a, a policy but there wasn't any um, way no systems in place or anything if anyone did report racism for example what you find with the, the Law Society, what you find with the Dentist Association, what you find with the NHS, the Engineering Society, is there are policies. And my, my, my argument was, where is a policy for any, to protect anybody? Because when I reported it, it was the RCVS blamed the BVA, the BVA blamed the RCVS, and, and nobody wanted to take responsibility. And what our profession needs is responsibility and leadership to take that as a thing. There wasn't that in place. So when I went in, I just said, you know, as a minimum, we need these things in place. If we're going to be this top achieving, high, highly rep- reputable profession, 
this is a minimum in in in, in this in this day and age. Um, yet we didn't have that in place, and that's just a reflection of people not having thought about it before, Thebe, isn't it? It's not it, you know that's no it. one's given that business focus to it because it wasn't deemed to be relevant. And I saw that on the ground when I was at Cambridge. I looked around the the entirety of the student body and started something called the Muddy Vet Society of those of us of colour, uh, of which there were four, like four in the entire in in the entire vet school, which I found absolutely shocking. And that's the problem is that it hasn't. It hasn't impacted enough members of our profession because we're not getting the members of our profession any significant number as people of colour. And that, and that is, I think, the, the root cause of it. It's not that no one's interested. It just hasn't been a, a big enough concern. And there was an open letter written by some really passionate students recently um, that made me really proud because there are there are student level activists <laughs> going into this and saying, look, guys, this is not OK. And I've been contacted by some amazing um, people in the student body who have approached me to say, how can I help? And these people aren't people of colour. And I, I love that people are getting stimulated with the current climate to get involved. And that, and that's also what we need. And I spoke to one lovely lady who is a Liverpool student, and she's um, going to do a project that's focused purely around how do we engage earlier in the school level with people that might otherwise perhaps not consider it as a career. And that's something that needs to happen as well. And to look at the blocks there, to look at the barriers to entry, to look at the points at which people are being disadvantaged from even applying. You know, I went to Bromley College of Further Education where I was told very bluntly, are, are black people applying to be vets these days? And I was like, sorry, what? And I had to set up my own int- entrance exam to get into Cambridge because they had no experience because no one had ever in a 25-year history of that college, which was a predominantly black and mixed race college, no one had applied from there and that was shocking to me as a, as someone who'd been working in the city used to a huge range of diversity I lived in London for 10 years before I then applied to vet school and I was just shocked at the at that being such a barrier because if I hadn't been me and hadn't been a feisty 28 year old businesswoman that might have put me off that might have been enough to go oh okay then <laughs> maybe it isn't for me and I got told it's very difficult dear are you sure so, so when we think about barriers of getting into vet school, people always talk about grades. People might talk about um, access to animals, but it happens. You know, when do people um, want to become vets? It's sort of seven or eight years old. You know, a lot of people, um, and and the big thing about role models and and in materials like that, and actually. That is, a, you know, if we're not going to um, inspire children at that age, then how, you know, the rest of the barriers are, are later on. So I think um, for me, you know, people go, oh, you know, James Herriot's my role model. or And you just think to yourself, well, they're role models, but who too, you know, um, because not for me. I, I used to actually change the channel, you know, I, I never read James Herriot because I wasn't interested. But for me, my uncle was a vet. OK, and that was my role model. And 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 he was and and he um, he struggled a lot trying to work in this country, you know, not having studied here and things like that. But when I worked with him, I looked up to him as my role model and I was lucky to have that inspiration. It wasn't anything else that inspired me. And um, when I was at that school, yeah, you always told, you know, grades are too tough and you'll never get in. And um, and I didn't come from a farming background. I never you know, the biggest animal I owned, I think, was goldfish and a couple of birds once. So it wasn't that any of that that really sort of pushed me. It was just it was that role model thing that then gave me the encouragement for everything else. So um, there are, you know, when you think about barriers for diversity in the veterinary profession, it happens at every level. It happens pre-vet school. It happens in vet school. And it happens post-vet school. Um, so, you know, and, and as 
someone of colour, you're, you're, you're motivating yourself to carry on. There's no one else that's going to be motivating you. You're, you're the one who pushes yourself into the vet school. You're the one who pushes yourself through vet school. And you're the one who pushes yourself in your career. And I don't think people realise that. You know, and the other thing is you're doing that in isolation because when you do face trouble or problems um, based on your race, who do you talk to? That's the difference between equality and equity, isn't it? Is there's an equal opportunity to apply for vet school for all of us, but the equity between our positions as people of colour and people that aren't is wildly skewed in the favour of the others. And that is, to me, a really sad state to be in in this day and age. And I, and I know we're not the only profession that have that. I saw a really moving post by a black QC the other day who was um, talking about how much harder he has to work just to get to the same level of exposure, level of caseload. You know, I get it. It's not this isn't the only profession. But, you know, as you say, we are striving to be someone that's that's in thought leadership, that's in a strong, healthy profession. And, and I see this as a, as a massive part of that. It's where there's a. They do blind trials on um, collective bias and they do trials based on, they change the name on a CV. So there was an experiment done recently where they swapped the name of the candidate but left everything else the same and they gave the candidate a very obviously foreign name and it was ridiculous the effect that had on the uptake of those CVs getting to either interview, offer or, you know, and it was the same experience and they set it up as a blind trial. They did a, a it's a confirmational bias is, is something that's been studied a lot in terms of things like music, where you hire people for an orchestra based on their abilities, right? No, not so much. They did a blind trial in front of um, the panel that would select the orchestra, but because they couldn't see that person behind the screen, the split in the gender changed immediately from being 80% male to being completely 50-50. So they took away they they took away that filter that people have, and they've done the same with race as well. Personally, for, from a gender perspective, I don't I approve of blind CVs and blind trials and things like that. But I am not in favour of positive discrimination from a gender perspective myself. Do you guys? How do you guys feel about that from a race perspective? I don't think I think positive discrimination is a wrong thing because you're picking people based on a protected characteristic, which is wrong. But positive action is correct. So if you have two candidates exactly the same, but the only difference is one has a protected characteristic and one doesn't, then it's okay to pick the person with a protected characteristic if the CVs are the same, because that's positive action. So you're, you're, you're picking someone based um, despite a protected characteristic. The other thing would be grades, for example, and picking people to pick going to vet school. Now, if you put three A's, okay, somebody who goes to a university, goes to a college where the top grades for the last 10 years have been two B's and a fail and everyone else fails. And then suddenly someone achieves three B's compared to someone who goes to a private school where 90% of people get straight A's. Which person's achieved more? But if you put the same grades for both, then you're going to be disadvantaging somebody who has who doesn't have the, um, the, the, the background or has, have the tools to achieve. So I think positive action is important, not positive discrimination. Prior to the recent events with the murder of George Floyd and the protests in Britain, but, but over the past few years in particular, uh, what I have encountered is a lot of people who don't think that there is a problem. And particularly even in the veterinary profession and in wider society would deny that there is a racial problem in Great Britain. 
it was interesting. I was listening to Afua Hirsch in an interview yesterday where she was saying that in America, they perceive racism to be much more prevalent than they perceive in the UK, that here a lot of people hold the opinion that racists are very violent or that and that racism is not micro the microaggressions that we see on a daily basis her making the distinction between the US and the UK and how racism is perceived in society in those two countries is quite an interesting point yeah i think i think that that that's correct so when the thing is if you ask 90% you ask the UK country what's racism look like people are going to go swat stickers hitler salutes far right um um using the n word calling using the p word uh, that is overt racism and that's why i rec- i don't think there's many people in this country would who would not be able to recognize that as racism um and so to be honest if people don't see that then they don't believe it's there's racism going on and that's there's the issue and that's the education about what racism really is um so racism can happen in a number of ways there's a systemic racism um that has that puts up barriers for people to advance and 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 the things that are ingrained in society that we need to break down but there's the individual racism um where we you know, we talked about this overt racism but i think there's also the microaggressions that you mentioned now the overt racism you know i've had that to me i've had hate mail i've had people use that bad language against me and it doesn't happen every day probably maybe once every month if that okay and it's it's hurtful when you see it or, or you hear it and um but you move on okay because that's one day you move on and it doesn't affect you what affects you is the daily stuff and and the daily stuff is subconscious okay can be intentional or unintentional um but it's the daily stuff and and that's what grinds you down um so things like where you really from Okay, referring to me by my skin color and not my name, not even saying my name or mispronouncing my name without asking me what my name is, Um, anglicizing my name. Okay, these are all common things that happen daily, um, and 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 what it does is it makes you feel othered. Okay, so where are you really from? Now, would one white person ask another white person, both with British accents? where are you really from? I posted this on my Facebook page the other day, Thebe, and what was hilarious was the number of white people that immediately jumped on it going, oh, they, they were just being curious, Libby. They were just they were just being curious. I do that all the time. I'm just nosy about where people are from. I wouldn't mind if someone asked me. And I'm like, guys, you don't get it. You know, and these are lovely people that I really care about. But, I, you know, I was just trying to be in McDonald's with my kids having a meal and it was literally the waitress cleaning the tables. Oh, where are you from? And I'm like, Greenwich. <laughs> and she's like, no, I mean, originally, uh, mm, Oaks. you know, keep going, love, you're just digging. And and then I was like, can, can we just eat now? And she's like, oh, no, it's just that your skin, you know, your skin, you're very obviously not from here, are you? And that, that level of othering is so offensive that, and it's so, it, and it's it cuts to the soul of you don't belong here. And it's telling you in, in words of one syllable, you are not like me. And and the problem with white people then replying to that with, oh, they're just curious. It's like, right, so where are you from? What, would I do that? Would I volunteer that question looking at a white-skinned, blue-eyed person? No, I wouldn't because it, would, it wouldn't occur to me to, to look at their racial heritage. No, and, that, and that's it. And, and the problem is they're only asking that question to people of colour. So it's obviously an othering way of, a way of othering somebody. So I think that that daily language is more harmful to people of colour, um, both their mental health, their well-being, um, than the overt racism. And I think both, you know, vets, um, clients and such like just 
do not understand that part. So when they feel like there isn't any racism going on, they, um, they, they're they forgetting that actually it's those daily occurrences that are probably the most taxing thing. I, th- I think the important thing is, uh, I think people have got to educate themselves. So it's not for us to go and educate every single individual in the veterinary profession. Now, what we can do is we can provide guidance. We can provide awareness. So I've just provided awareness that these microaggressions are wrong. So now it's up to every individual to take responsibility and go, well, okay, that's wrong, but where do I find the answers? Now, there's something called Google, brilliant for answers, yeah. There's something called, um, you know, social media. So another thing is how many people of colour do people follow on social media, on their Twitter, on their Facebook? Because a lot of these answers, are, are a lot of these questions are answered um, and a lot of people will talk about these issues. So I think self-education is important. Now, BVED, we are producing certain things. We are producing materials for students. We are trying to work on a guidebook for vets. It's not going to answer every question and every single thing. Um, but we're meant to be an intelligent and an aware profession. You'd think that people would learn to, to self-educate. And I think that's without self-education, um, you're not going to get anywhere. I think it's the impetus. It's the impetus to do so, though, isn't it, Thebe? And I think what's been really heartwarming for me in this last two weeks of utter turmoil around the BLM protest, followed by the hideous racist protest that followed, was seeing my lovely friends, some of whom live in places like my lovely friend Erica lives in beautiful North Wales, Shropshire borders, where this probably isn't part of their daily experience. They don't get exposed to it as much. And yet she's gone out and bought the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, at my recommendation, which makes me so happy because you get a bit tired having to be the source of education all the time to people. And yeah, it's no, it's no longer enough to say that you're not a racist you have to be actively anti-racist in this day and age you must start stepping up and living a bigger game guys i'm talking to you directly here that are that are not perhaps people of color and thank you for listening if you are because it's really important that this word gets out there you we now have to actively look at how we can be anti-racist and the very first step steve says is educate yourself and it is you choosing to buy that book and then read it to follow other people that aren't like you to start looking at other experiences because all the information is already there. I absolutely loved that book. And another one was The Good Immigrant, which I also thought was absolutely brilliant. Such a good book. And The Good Immigrant, if you, you know, when I read those stories, it was like my life being told by about 12 different people. And, um, and, and that's the thing. Like if you read books like that, it, you start to put your walk in someone else's shoes, um, which is really, really important. Um, because that, that's the problem. It's if you're not willing to break down your own barriers and, and actually admit maybe mistakes have been made and absorb other people's perspectives and ideas, then to become anti-racist won't happen. And saying that you're not racist is not enough because silence is complicity to the problem. What was funny was I put a post up yesterday on Facebook that was satire written by someone saying, I'm not a misogynist, but... And it was so beautifully written that actually a couple of my friends went, oh, God, that's hideous views. Why are you sharing that? And I'm like, read it again, guys. And then put the word race instead of misogyny in there and see what you get. And it's really fascinating that it it looks so outlandish when you put it on on a gender slant because we're over that now in the main there's still work to be done, but we're over that as a, you know, we have the vote and we we have some license. But but the racism angle was so subtle that, that some people got tripped up by it, which is hilarious. Because, yeah, we, we still hear this, don't we? I'm not a racist, but it's really common. 
No, but the other thing, for example, people say, oh, I'm not racist because I've got a black friend. Yes. But it's like me saying I'm not sexist because I'm married to a woman. You know, men can still be sexist and still have a wife and, and daughters. So that those sort of arguments that try to, trying to get people off the hook that they can't be racist because it doesn't, doesn't stick. Sadly, I wish I had more optimism than I had friends posting, I'm not a racist, but, you know, it's been really heartwarming to see those friends of mine who have stepped up and bought books and posted things in support and, you know, said things to me like, God, I had no idea. That's been lovely. What's depressing is the huge groundswell that led to the racist riot the week after. The other thing that depresses the hell out of me is that being described in the press and the mainstream media as scuffles between anti-anti-racist protesters. And when you think about what they've just done by doing that, that really worries me. Our media seems to be so... I think in a recent study, we were our press was less free than that of Uganda. We were 40th on the list of press freedoms. You know, we've we've slipped a long way. It's taken four years to go from there are concerns about immigration to swastikas and Hitler salutes at the Cenotaph. And you think about that. You think about what the country has been led towards by the very obvious raising of immigration as a political tool. And... That worries me a lot, I've got to be honest, and I don't see this having a great ending. We are looking very divided in those people that acknowledge what they need to do to be anti-racist and those that just don't yet. And I'd say um, that the important thing about Black Lives Matter is we've got to remember it's about black people. And, you know, in, in history, black people have been treated the worst out of any race. Um, so I think it's really important that we understand that you know, this is, this whole Black Lives Matter movement was born out of frustration about how systemic racism, overt racism, everything has been affecting the black community the worst. And they need that support and they need that acknowledgement that they need, you know, to, to, to better. And, but what it's done for other communities and other people of colour is it's increased the awareness of, of, of our situations. And, and it's almost like we support Black Lives Matter because you know, they the way they've been treated has been the worst, but actually we can also lend our voice because we've we've in it not as in that badly we've been treated, but we also suffer from certain um indignitaries. Um and I think it's also a culmination of of Brexit and the anti immigrant uh, feeling through that moved on and, and you know I got a racist uh, attacks through that um you know being told you know by vets even that I've got not it's nothing about racism and I've got nothing to feel even though I was talking about my own feelings to the covid crisis and the disproportionate effect on BME communities and then to black lives matter so it's been it's been happening for a while and I think it's been adding and adding and adding and the the frustrations come out um so what libby said I think it's true it's the one thing that has empowered a lot of people, as a student, I would have never talked about it. Never. And to be honest, no one ever talked about it. And when, when I started talking in 2014, a lot of people were still silent. But, you know, over the last two weeks, the number of students I've talked to that feel empowered, they can talk about their own issues, about witnessing racist events or um, having racist events happen to them, has been amazing. And I think that, um, in a way, I think it's probably opened up that, that that students will feel empowered and they're going to start to try and create systems where they can share these things. Um, and that's good. 
Um, I think the systemic changes are going to take a long time, though. And I think when vet schools create those policies, those systems, the profession changing and creating those systems, that that's going to be one of those that we're not sure if it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And um, it's important that money is invested, time is invested. And if those two th- and, and, you know, as BVEDs, we're expected to do a lot for free. Um, and, you know, I, I, we can only do so much, um, but we need people to step up and go, do you know what? I believe in it so much. We're actually going to put money behind it and we're going to put somebody behind it as well. And um, we haven't seen a lot of that, to be honest, yet. So let's hope that that does happen. Um, but I think that um, it's important to remember that I think we, we shouldn't take it, a, you know, as a person of colour, I don't want to take it away from Black Lives Matter because it is about black people. Um, and we need to we need to re- remember that. And just out of interest, Thib, when you said you would never have talked about this as a student, what was it that gave you the final confidence or impetus, perhaps, to actually start discussing this and to take that step? You know, because it must have been a lonely place in the beginning. So um, why would I not talk about vet school? Because um, I needed to go through vet school. I needed to get on with people around me um, and who do I look around that would who'd understand where I'm coming from? So, you know, you have an all white teaching force, you have an all white class, um, all your EMS is white. So what you do is you put your head down and you get on with it. You pass your exams, you get on with people, you do the things you want to do, you hear um, racist comments and you just laugh it off. Uh, even blackface, even in our year, we had blackface going on, parties with blackface and you just couldn't say anything because you'd be the single person trying to talk up. Now, you go to you go into practice and then that's the next stage. You want to get a job. You want to keep you want to keep the clients and you don't want to upset your employers because you, you don't really know how you're doing to be a vet yet, let alone thinking about yourself. So that's so true. Yeah, and that's, that, yeah. that's the biggest thing, isn't it? And that cripples you for that first couple of years of, of, of wanting to rock the boat at all. Well, exactly. You talk about new graduates going on and being petrified about, you know, doing their first cat spay and dog spay. And so if you're worrying about that as well as racism, it's, it's what you try and do is, well, racism's happening. But at the moment, I just want to be a good vet. So what I did, is I worked my way up and I got more confident in my abilities. I got more confident in what I was. Um, but what hit me was, was when I had, you know, I'd been putting up racism all the time, especially being a farm vet. You put it up a lot more, I reckon, than probably as an equine vet. But as a farm vet, you put up with a lot. And um, I put up to the stage where when somebody wouldn't have me based, okay, on nothing but my skin colour, but my bosses didn't support me, when I appealed for help and my uh, my organisations, people I pay money to, like the RCVS and the BVA, wouldn't support me, I just thought... I've, you know, that's it. I'm going to leave. So I left clinical practice and I joined a pharmaceutical company. And then I felt in the pharmaceutical company, as multinational pharmaceutical company, I could be me now. And actually, I don't care if nobody offers me a job anymore in practice because I've got a great job and do what I want to do. So I'm going to fight it. Um, and that's and, and that's where it started, because actually I didn't care. Um, and, and what you find with the younger vets is, you know, they, 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 are, they fear these things. But what I think they're finding is actually there's a bigger cohort now that can support them and and also vets in practice that can support them so if other practices don't hire them it doesn't matter because there will be practices that will people people try to put the blame that uh, racism is is um an age thing so once we get rid of the old vets we're going to have this new fresh look to the profession I disagree with that. The number, if you, if you look at social media, look at the comments, racist comments coming from vets, there's a whole mix of age gaps, age groups, but also look at how much they get called out. Never. So our 
people will talk to you directly or individually and go, look, I'm against it. But in a setting, will people call out other people? I haven't seen it very much. I've seen more of the opposite of that, which is the um, active joining in of people. And there's this banding together. This we're all we're all you know we've got each other's backs. That isn't perhaps yet being seen the other way round, where if we post something, and I hope this is going to get bigger as we've been designing lots of materials in the background. There's some great new stuff coming out on Instagram, which is I hope going to raise the game a bit. But we need people to be allies. We need people to start actively joining us because we've been fighting this on our own for too long. And so we need those people that are benefiting from the system to back us up, to not only educate themselves, but to join us in an expression of being anti-racist. And that has to come from you guys, not from us. That really does. And that has to be the show of solidarity and strength. Over here, there's now a permissiveness that I've seen growing. And for example, I admin a very small village page. Um, we're right in the middle of the sticks. It's a very vanilla village. We're very white middle class village. And within the last year, a family moved in that suddenly rendered me not the only black in the village for once. And some other people of colour moved in. And there was a comment on one of their posts about, oh, well, you brownies should just... And I was horrified. I was horrified and deleted it straight away. And then other people waded in. And it allowed it allowed other people to sort of show their heads supporting that statement. And of course, I'm there, delete, 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 like going nuts, hitting delete all night long. But it, it sort of showed me that it's bubbling away. It's, it's sort of underneath the surface, but you pierce the crust and out it comes. And so I wish, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I can't be until more people stand up and actively position themselves as anti-racist. Unfortunately, I feel our profession in the main is still at that unconscious incompetence stage where they don't know what they don't know and they feel their experience is as valid of racism as ours. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, I haven't come across it. And no, that's your experience with your masks and your filters on. So you're unconsciously incompetent about what you don't know. You're consciously incompetent. So you, you've understood there's a need to educate. The next stage is that lovely conscious competence where you, you know the stuff and you can tell it to others. And we need more people at levels two and three before we're all unconsciously competent and gloriously just going about it. We're not there yet. So I think it's taking ownership of yourself. So don't expect others to come to you and to teach you and to explain it to you and take responsibility, educate yourself. It's all, it's okay to ask, where could I find information or do you recommend a good book? But don't explain, get, expect someone to read out the whole book for you or explain it to you. Um, and I think if you do to take ownership and you start to learn, um, then, then it will guide you in the right direction. Um, we all have privileges, um, and make use of them. So again, when you want to become anti-racist, start in your own circles. You don't need to change the world. Think about your own family sitting around a dinner table. If someone says something, can you actually just snip it in the bud then or your friends? Um, and if you do those little things, you know, little changes, they can make a huge difference overall. So don't have to think big, think small and start working your way up. And what I would say to those individuals who seem to, for some reason, continue to want to deny that racism exists is I'm talking to you guys and I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that you hear this. Please start somewhere. Don't just keep fighting. Don't just keep batting things back and forth on social media. Just do anything that advances you by one step. Because it's even, even if it's watching a video that explains racism really shortly and succinctly, and I'll post that on the Facebook page for Beavers today, 
anything that that just moves you one step nearer to a place of understanding and away from this oppositional fighting because we're tired of it and we've mentioned um i give another nod out to i'm why i'm no longer talking to white people about race which i think is an excellent book and we've also mentioned the good immigrant do either of you guys have one other book recommendation that you would throw out there natives by akala um it really gives a a history that you probably would have never learned at school I think Small Island is still a really good book. Oh, it's a um, brilliant book. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, still really, really powerful. My family were, um, they came over here from Trinidad to be teachers because they were invited here because they were told to come to the motherland and they thought they were coming somewhere where they felt a huge pride in being associated with because Britain had gone to their countries and told them all the way through, you're part of the empire, you're our commonwealth. And then when they got here... They were so betrayed by the sentiment that there was no blacks, no Irish, you know, that they couldn't find accommodation. They would have to go on a train on the last train of the night and sleep on it because they couldn't buy. You th- Think about that. They've travelled halfway around the world to get here. And so I feel hugely passionate that people need to understand our past to understand where we are now. And I'm very active in getting curriculums changed in our local area to reflect our colonial past. And so that book to me says a lot in, in quite a great way. As ever, thanks for listening. We discussed a few books in this episode, along with the work of the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society, and there are links in the show notes to some relevant websites and resources which I'd encourage you to read. You can find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram if you just search for BVEDS, and their website is bveds.com, where there is a whole lot more information on everything that's been talked about today. You can follow me on socials at Naomi the Vet with underscores between. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do tell a friend or give us a little rating and a review on iTunes as it really does help other people to find us. As I said, this is the final episode of Borborygmy for this season, but we'll be back later in the year with more veterinary conversations. And if you've got something you'd like to talk about on the show with a friend or colleague, do drop me a line. We love to hear from you. Thank you to everyone involved so far for your help and support. It has been much appreciated.